That song says a lot about Jesus. And a healthy church has people who are at different places in their connection to Jesus. You know, and, uh, there are some who are spiritually mature. And there are some who are just being introduced to him for the first time. There's everybody in the middle. And if you are in that place where you're like, I'm hearing what we're singing, but it sounds familiar in the way that Africa sounds familiar or Antarctica sounds familiar, that you trust that it's really there and you don't have any reason to doubt the sincerity of those who are telling you about it. If that's your relationship with Jesus today, then it's a great place to be. But if you want to take a a step towards being familiar in a personal way, with some personal experience, then over here to my right and to your left is the access room. And, uh, this is just a little preview because at the end of the message, I'm going to share the gospel again and I'm going to tell you that Jesus lived a perfect life as God's son and he came to earth, lived a perfect life here as God's son wrapped in humanity. He offered up his life on the cross for us, for you. He was raised three days later, ascended up into heaven and one day he will return for those who believe in him. And if you want to take a step in learning a little bit more about that, or maybe today you're like, I need to believe in Jesus. I've been putting it off forever. Uh, then at the end, I'm going to invite everyone to leave in a real super friendly way, but I'm going to invite everyone to leave. And I'm inviting you to stick around and head over to the access room. People are in there to be prayed for. People are in there because they have some questions and they need some spiritual advice. But you can go over there to take that step, that next step towards putting your faith in Jesus, and uh, so you don't have to take my word for it or take someone else's word for it. You can find out for yourself. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. We believe it is the living and active word of God. We believe it's powerful to divide us into two today, and it cuts through all of our pretense, and it cuts through all of our distractions, and it gets to the heart of the issue, and so that's what I'm praying today is that your word would just get to the heart of what's going on in our lives and you would speak to us right where we are. Lord, I pray this would be a message for somebody that we know somewhere that this would be a message for us today. I pray it would feel personal like you're speaking it to us uh, and just us alone. We're grateful to do life together as a family and as a family, we open up your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Welcome to Bayou City Fellowship. We're so glad that you are here. I know I'm the 30th person to welcome you here, but we really mean that. Uh, How many of you have ever had to take a leap of faith, a a leap of faith? We use that phrase a lot uh, for different reasons. Uh, I remember when Amanda and I had been dating for about nine months, uh, she was definitely sure that she wanted to marry me. I was still kind of on the fence about it. Um, I'm just kidding. I knew immediately that I wanted to marry her, and and, uh, she said those same things about me, which was nice. It's always nice to hear. uh, But just because you're, you know, 20 years old and 21 years old, and you think it's a good idea for you to be married, doesn't mean it's actually a good idea for you to be married. You're going to want to run that by somebody a little older and wiser, and so that's why they put in to the marriage process the man going to ask the dad for permission because the young man is a boy man and not a full man yet and just needs somebody to okay that. And so um, I had to talk to Amanda's dad. Now, uh, 
I've told you about him before. He is an amazingly wonder, uh, wonderful man. But if Texas, our great and beloved state, decided it no longer wanted to be a state anymore and it just wanted to be a person, that is my father-in-law. It just, <laughs> Texas with skin on and boots on and Wranglers. That's what it is like. And he's got these big, broad shoulders. And here I am, this boy man from Missouri, 20 years old, and I want to marry his firstborn daughter. So I was sure that if I asked Amanda to marry me and I got down on my knee and I did that whole thing, I was sure that she was going to say yes. There was no doubt in my mind. We had talked about it a million times for a long time. It required very little faith to ask Amanda to marry me, but to ask her dad for permission, uh, it was a leap of faith. I wasn't sure if I stepped out there that there'd actually be some ground under my feet because he had appropriately played it very cool and by very cool I mean very mean in the whole time that we had been together because you don't need to be best buddies with your daughter's boyfriend you don't need to do that you need to put the fear of life and death in them and that's exactly what he did and so I'm a brave man so I did what any brave man would do is I sent my wife in my future wife in a few weeks ahead of me to blaze the trail like a pioneer and so she set her mom and dad down and said this is what we're thinking what do you think this is where we want to get married this is when we want to get married all that stuff so he had an awareness that it was coming but still there came that moment when we we were all in the house together and suddenly and mysteriously for a very good reason, I'm sure Amanda and her mom leave the house. And so I'm upstairs and Mr. Moore is downstairs and it's only about 50 feet away, but it could have been a million miles away. And then I got to awkwardly find a reason to come down the stairs and I fuddled in the kitchen like I was getting a drink of water. And then, oh, hey, maybe I should go in there and just sit down on the couch. And so there we are sitting on the couch watching television. And how do you train? transition that. I know that you're watching something, uh, but can we have a life-changing, altering, monumental discussion right now here in the middle of the living room? And so he's a smart guy. He knew what I was calling. Plus, I was sweating like crazy. <laughs> and, uh, and so I just laid it out there. Can I talk to you? And he's like, duh, you can talk to me. We're the only two people in the house. And just, you know, I said, I'd like to marry your daughter. And he, he said a bunch of stuff that uh, I didn't remember because I just was done. That was all I had to get out was, can I marry your daughter? And uh, no, he had, a, he had a great speech prepared and it was great. And I'm still scared of him. Uh, I, know I'm, I know I'm fully loved, but I'm still scared of him, which I, I think is great. I can't wait to do this to Annabeth's future husband. <laughs> he was just leading the way like a good leader and father. But it took a lot of faith to walk down those stairs and have that very awkward conversation. It was a leap. You know, and, and you've maybe been in that situation before where it's like, I'm going to make this decision and I'm going to do this and I'm going to pick this path and I feel like it's the right thing to do, but I'm not 100% sure. Wouldn't it be nice if you were just always 100% sure? Wouldn't it just be fantastic if you never had to, to decide anything? You never had to think about anything. You never had to attempt anything that wasn't already guaranteed to be a success. It wasn't already guaranteed to be the right decision. It would be so fantastic if that's the way it worked. But actually what the Bible tells us today, if you could arrange your life like that, if you were wealthy enough, if you were powerful enough, if you were influential enough, if you were a bully enough, and you could arrange your life so that every decision was guaranteed for you and you didn't need any uh, faith, you didn't ever wonder, is this the right thing to do, then you wouldn't actually live a life that was pleasing to God. 
So actually what our human instinct wants to secure for us undermines what God wants to do for us and the way that God wants us to live. Because Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 says this, without faith it is impossible to please God. So I want you to turn there. Hebrews chapter 11. We've been in this series called Flourish, talking about the church. And as we've started each time, I want to read two scriptures together, all of us out loud. Ephesians 2, 19, followed by Psalm 92, verse 13, talking about the household of faith. It's up on the screen in front of you. Let's read these out loud together. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Psalm 92, verse 13. This is talking about the righteous. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. So you see a progression there. We start out as aliens and strangers. We're not actually born into the family of God. We have to be adopted into the family of God. We have to be grafted in to his family. But then we're a part of the household of faith. We're in the family. But then more than just being in the family, more than just having a title, you want to be planted in God's house. You want to put down roots. And one of the challenges I've been trying to lay on our shoulders in this series that we've been, been doing called Flourish is to put down roots means that you linger a little bit. That's how you know you've made it all the way in. That when church is over, that you're not the very first person to leave. You're not the last one here and the first one out. That you linger. There are people who care about you, that know your name, that know your story, and they genuinely want to know how your weekend has been. It's not just small talk. And there are people that you know and you love, and you genuinely want to know how their week was. You linger You place down roots. And when you put down roots, when you plant yourself in the house of God, then you begin to bear fruit. You begin to flourish. You can look around at what's happening here in a community group or in kids ministry or on our host team. And you go, I'm a part of that. I can see God at work and my fingerprints are are there. My fingerprints aren't the main prints. But I have stake in what God is doing here. Aliens and strangers, household of faith, planted in God's house and flourishing. We've talked about the church and our priorities. We've talked about the church and the fame of Jesus. We've talked about the church and the word of God. We've talked about the church and family. And as I've mentioned, you're only getting half of these messages because I'm doing the other half at our other church in Spring Branch. Uh, But go online, buyucityfellowship.com and catch the podcast. They're all there, very clear. You don't have to thumb through them. They're the only things on there so that you can catch up with this series so that we can move through this progression. And today we're talking about the church and faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says, Now faith is the assurance... Of things hoped for, that assurance, it's confidence, it's um, confirmation, it's like a title deed. He's saying that I have a title deed of things hoped for, for the conviction of things not seen. Conviction, it means to be convinced, it's proof of things not seen. This is what Jesus is, is telling Thomas in John chapter 20, verse 29, because Thomas was a doubter and he doubted that Jesus has been raised from the dead and, and then Jesus appears and he doesn't doubt anymore. And Jesus says, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's what it's talking about. It's talking about 
conviction of things that we haven't seen. And then it goes on to list in Hebrews chapter 11 some legends of the faith. Not legends in the sense of there was something true and then a bunch of untrue things got piled on to make it seem grand. But these are the heroes of the faith. These are the saints that went before us. The saints that went before the people of God. The ancestors of old. And this is what it says in verse 2. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So you need faith to believe that God created all of this. You're not going to get any evidence. You're not going to get any 100% sure guarantee that it happened just as the word of God said it happened. Because it's by faith we believe the world was created. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Verse 5, By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. Forever who would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So it says without faith, it's impossible to please God. That word impossible, it means the opposite of power. It means that you and I, our best effort to draw near to God, to get close to God, to please God, to live a life that God would say, I'm happy about that. You and I are powerless to make that happen. You are impotent in pleasing God on your own Apart from faith. And then he gives us the two keys. Significant markers for why these people walked with faith. And all these people who are listed. Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and Jacob and Joseph. All these people who are listed in Hebrews chapter 11. He he gives us right in the middle of it. Here are the two things. That they anchored to. And what does it say? For whoever would draw near to God, who would ever live with faith, who would ever live a life that's pleasing to God, must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So if you have a decision in front of you today, I can go path A or I can go path B, and you're asking God, God, what do you want? Ask yourselves those two questions. As a person who has these decisions make, decisions to make, what does it look like for me to believe that God exists and that God rewards those who seek him? Maybe there's some strain in your marriage. Things are just not in sync right now. You're walking through it faithfully. What does it look like to walk through that season of your marriage, believing that God exists and believing that he rewards those who seek him? Maybe you're having a hard time at work and your boss is just awful. And he's the worst or she's the worst. And every day you get to the office and you just dread it. But you want to be faithful. You want to honor God with your work. What does it look like to be in that situation as someone who believes that God exists and believes that God rewards those who seek him? So let's use that filter to look at the first two people mentioned here. Abel and Enoch. Both found at the beginning of Genesis. Genesis chapter 4. In Genesis chapter 5. 
This is Abel's story. Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with his help, with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. So we're introduced to Abel, who's remembered forever in Hebrews chapter 11. And it says in verse 4 that he brought of the firstborn of his flock as an offering to God. Cain brought some of the fruit from the ground. He was a farmer and that was his offering and God rejected it. But Abel brought the firstborn of his flock, which meant that Abel decided ahead of time that he was going to make this offering. He didn't do what I like to do, which is to wait and see how things work out and then decide what I'm going to do. Then decide if I'm going to have faith. If the circumstances are in my favor, then no problem. I will live with faith. If there's anything that's scaring me a little bit, then I'm going to kind of reserve the right to do whatever I want in the interest of self-protection. But Abel didn't do that. Abel didn't say, you know what, I'm going to wait and see if the firstborn is super amazing. What if the firstborn is super amazing? Now, I'm not a farmer. I grew up in Missouri, but that doesn't mean we're all farmers. So I don't know what a prize-winning sheep looks like. But let's say that Abel Abel had his firstborn uh, sheep, and it was a prize-winning sheep. It was going to provide for the family. I'm not even really sure. Maybe a lot of coats. I, I don't know what they were going to do with it. But it was so big, and it was so great, and it was so perfect. And he thought, man, we need this for ourselves. This would be good for us. I can sell this and I can give the money to the poor, or I can sell this and I can give this money to the kids, or I can sell this and keep this money for myself, but it's so good. I can't part with it. And then we'd like to make a deal with God. Here's the deal, God. This firstborn is so great. I'm actually going to keep it. But here, I'm going to make a deal with you. I'll actually give you the secondborn and the thirdborn. See, it's two for one deal. It's perfect. Odds are still in your favor. You're still getting what you want. I get what I want a little bit. That's the kind of thing I like to do. Or maybe the firstborn comes and it comes in a season where the herd is really thin. And he's like, man, I can't part with this right now. If you had come to me last season, I had a flock that was overflowing and abundant, and I would have given you the firstborn no problem. But I can't give this away, not right now. But he didn't do that. He predetermined by faith this is going to be my offering. No matter what the circumstance is, no matter if it's a great thing, a prize-winning thing, or it comes in a season where the herd is thin, this is what I have decided to do. It would be like you deciding to go Old Testament style and say, you know what, I'm going to give 10% of my income to the church. I'm going to tithe. 
Whether I make a lot of money, I'm going to tithe 10%. Whether I don't make a lot of money, I'm going to tithe 10%. What our human nature wants us to do is it wants us to be self-centered and it wants us to be fearful. So if our income is vast, when you sit down to write that 10% check, it's a lot of money. And you're thinking, I can't part with this much money. I can use this for myself. I can use this for my family. I can use this to give me one more of that thing that I already have. Or it comes in a season where you didn't make a lot. And to part with 10%, 10% means I only have a 90%, and, and I'm already living at 110%. I can't part with 10%. But it's predeciding. No, this is what I'm going to do. Whether there's abundance or not abundance, I've determined, predecided, this is going to happen. It's like when the doctor says you need to come back in to take some more tests. You predecide, no matter what the results of those tests are, I'm going to walk by faith, I'm going to believe in God, I'm going to honor the wisdom of the doctors. Whether it's best case scenario, or worst case scenario, or something in the middle, this is how I have already decided to respond by faith. Saw a perfect example of this on Friday. There's a little little family in our church, young family. Their nine-month-old daughter was having open-heart surgery at Texas Children's on Friday. Can you imagine that? I mean, her heart is literally this big, and they were going to operate on it. And so I showed up early in the morning to pray with the family and be with them. The, the little sweet little one was already back, uh, kind of getting prepped for surgery and um, you know, I walked in as a basket case because I, I can't imagine what it would have been like for that to be Annabeth, my daughter, when she was nine months old, or Jackson, my son, when he was nine months old. And so I'm already just emotional all over the place. And, and, uh, but, you know, you're the pastor, and so you're supposed to come with, like, some kind of level of confidence that this is going to be all right. And, and I'm walking in. I'm putting my best face on. And, but they just have this, this countenance of steadiness on them. And they're fully aware of best case scenario and worst case scenario and all the scenarios in between. They're fully aware of the seriousness of what's happening. They're rightfully nervous and apprehensive, but they just have this peace on them. They have this calm on them. And it was inspiring to me. I mean, I'm the pastor. I'm supposed to be inspiring to you and I'm getting inspired. I'm the one that's a basket case and you guys are holding it together. Because I'm hearing them saying things like, you know, we knew when she was in the womb that this was going to be an issue. And so we trusted God then and we're going to trust him now. We've been trusting him all the way. He's been faithful so far. We're going to believe he's going to keep being faithful. We don't know what's going to happen, but we're going to walk with God no matter what. See, they had predetermined that they were going to walk by faith. They weren't going to wait until the sea how it shook out. Does she need one surgery? Does she need two surgeries? Does she need three surgeries? They're going to walk by faith no matter what. And there was a steadiness about them. Some of us are just bouncing back and forth in faith. Some days we have a lot of faith. Some days we have zero faith. Some days we've uh, blessed God because he's so good. Some days we're so angry at God because he hasn't given us what we want. And we bounce back and forth like that because we've not decided once and for all we are going to live by faith no matter what. We're in this for the long haul. I committed my life to Jesus at this time and I'm still committed to him today. Whether God gives me abundance or it's lean, whether he gives me what I'm asking for or he doesn't give me what I'm asking for, I've already decided this 
this is how I'm going to live. And if you are bouncing back and forth, if it seems like you love God and are close to him one moment, and then you're far away from God and you're mad at him the next, you need to decide, are you in or are you out? Are you going to live by faith or are you not? Because if you wait to the moment to decide what you are going to do, you're just going to default to selfishness and fearfulness. And the reason you want to decide ahead of time what you will do is because you can't decide in the moment how you will feel. You can't tell if you're going to just naturally have an inclination to doing the right thing or you're going to naturally have an inclination for doing the wrong thing. So you decide ahead of time. When it doesn't matter what you feel, if you're going to live by faith and make an offering of faith like Abel or not. I love this story because Abel's the one who is the hero of the faith. Abel is the saint who gets remembered, but he's not even the main character of his own story. If you count the verses, Cain is referenced way more than Abel. Most of these verses are in reference to Cain and not Abel. He's not even the main player in his story. And if you go to Hebrews chapter 11 and you read that whole chapter, what Abel offered by faith was actually the least significant of all the offerings. His story is the least interesting. You've got Enoch walking with God. You've got Noah building the ark. You've got Moses uh, floating down a river. You've got Abraham leaving his uh, family and home country to follow God into an unknown place. You've got David. You've got these people giving their lives as martyrs. And then there's Abel offering up a sheep. Something literally from Genesis chapter 3 and 4 and 5 on, you will read people do thousands and thousands and thousands of times. But Abel's offering is legendary. Not because of what it was, it was a sheep, but because of the faith that's attached to it. That's why Cain's offering was rejected. It's not because God doesn't like fruit. He does, he made it. (laughs) It's because when Abel offered his, he offered it in faith. And when Cain offered his, there was no faith. And that's why the Bible says that God did not regard it. That means that Cain's offering just bounced off God like it didn't even exist. Which should really scare some of us today. Because if you came to church today, and you're just here because you think you ought to be here, you're here because somebody guilted you into it, there's no faith attached to it, it means nothing to God. It's not getting you any closer to him. The buckets are going to pass at the end of the service as they do every week. If you're going to put money in there, if you're going to write a check in there, you're going to drop a few dollars in there because you think that that's what you should do and are supposed to do, but there's no faith attached to that offering, keep it. I mean, we can use it, and somebody's going to be blessed by it, but it means nothing to God. He has no regard for it. So if your spiritual life and faith is just a bunch of actions that you do because they ought to be done, and they don't mean anything from your place of faith, they're just bouncing off God like they don't exist. And so some of us need to back out of our actions so we can get back in our faith. Some of us need to stop giving 
until we can give with faith. Some of us need to stop volunteering until we can volunteer with faith. Some of us need to stop serving the poor until we can serve the poor in faith. Because to God, all of those things, they're fine things. And they're going to bless somebody. And that's a good thing in and of itself. But to God, they don't get us any closer to him. They don't draw us near him. They mean nothing to him because they're not attached to faith. And he has no regard for them. Just like Cain's offering. But Abel offered something so simple. And so insignificant in the scheme of all the other offerings we read about in the scripture. But God made sure that it found its way into Hebrews chapter 11. So thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years later, we are remembering this sheep. Because Abel believed two things. He believed that God existed and that God rewards those who seek him. And then it goes on to tell us about Enoch. Hebrews 11, verse 5, it says, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Genesis chapter 5, verse 18, we read the story of Enoch. It's not a lot, but here's what we know about him. Verse 18, When Jared was living 162 years, he fathered Enoch. And Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. And when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God and after he fathered Methuselah 300 years, and and he walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years and Enoch walked with God And he was not, for God took him. So let's review what we know about Enoch. I know you guys are a bunch of Enoch scholars, but let's just, for my sake, make a list. Enoch is the son of Jared, which I find hilarious. Of all the Bible names out there, this guy's name is Jared. Jared was 162 years old when Enoch was born. He's pretty old. Enoch had brothers and sisters. Enoch fathered Methuselah when he was only 65 years. So he was just a young lad at age 65 when his kids started being born. Enoch walked with God. That means uh, he had a friendship with God and a closeness with God and a relationship with God. And God took him, the Bible says. Now that doesn't mean that God let him die and then took him to heaven. That meant that God so enjoyed his relationship with Enoch, that he just transferred him from earth to heaven. Or, yeah, earth to heaven. It was like God wanted to walk with Enoch the way that he had walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, in person. But sin had created that distance, but God didn't want that distance with Enoch anymore. And he said, I'm going to take you to be up here with me. You walk with me down here, and you're going to walk with me up here. Genesis chapter 6 tells us what the culture around Enoch was like. Because I think it's easy for us to think, well, this is Genesis chapters, you know, 6, 5 and 6. How bad could the earth be? I mean, probably everybody was walking with God at that time. Because there were only like, you know, 15 people on the planet, apparently. But that's actually not the case. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Can you imagine that? I mean, our culture is bad. The world is bad. Terrible things are happening. 
But at this season, what was in the heart of man was only evil. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Now this depravity peaks with Noah. But Noah was born only 65 years after his great-grandfather Enoch got transferred to heaven. So we're talking about the same context. And in the context of this evil trajectory, this depravity, here is Enoch walking with God, relating to God. He's pre-Moses when the scripture says about Moses that God used to speak to Moses as a man speaks with his friend. Before Moses, there was Enoch. In the midst of all this depravity, which I think we can relate to Enoch. Sometimes it's hard to be righteous in the midst of all this unrighteousness. Especially when you have this sin nature in us that attracts to that unrighteousness like a magnet. But Enoch shows us by faith we walk with God. Which I love it because... He was walking by faith with God in the same way that we have to walk by faith with God. God wasn't there in person. God was not giving Enoch any special treatment when he was on the earth here that he is not willing to give you and to give me. But by faith, Enoch walked with God in his culture of depravity. And by faith, we will walk with God in our culture. And why did he do that? Because he believed that God existed and he believed that God rewarded those who seek him. That sounds almost too simple though, doesn't it? I mean, we think about faith, we think of like this mystery, this big mystery. But Hebrews eleven six says, here's the key. You believe that God exists and that God rewards. That's it. That sounds too simple. And what we mean and what the Bible means when it says that you believe that God exists, it doesn't mean that we're, we're just not atheists. doesn't mean that you just believe that, oh, there is a God out there and he's somewhere, so therefore I have faith. No, it means that you believe that the God of the Bible exists, that you believe in the God as that is revealed in the pages of scripture, that you believe in the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and you believe in the God of, of Jesus. And more than just believing in God, you believe in the Godhead. You believe in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's all of that. So when we say that we believe that God exists, that's what we're talking about. We believe that He exists. And so we amen a few things when we believe that God exists. We amen that God loves us. We say yes to that. We believe that. We amen that God is sovereign that he is our creator, but he is also our Lord. And at the end of the day, the yes and the no are in his hands and not in our hands. We amen that he has a plan that's bigger than my life and your life. That he's taking my story and he's taking your story and he's taking our culture story and he's taking the world story and he's weaving them all together. That he has a plan that's bigger than my life and it's bigger than your life. But we amen that that plan is securing for us a future that we can't even imagine. So when we say we believe God exists, that's what we are amening. That I'm loved and I'm looked after by God. But that he's also sovereign and he's not only just looking out for me. And that he's got something in store that's bigger than me. But it's good for me what he has in store. And that he rewards those who seek him. Now, when I hear the word reward, what I hear is earn. 
If you go home today and you're driving through your neighborhood and you see a little sign up on the post because uh, someone has lost their dog, what's it going to say? It's going to have a picture of little Bobo the Wonder Dog on there, and they're going to be decked out in their Christmas finest. And, and there's going to be a, a, something that says lost dog on there, and then it's going to say a phone number for you to call if you find Bobo the Wonder Dog. And then it's going to say reward, $100. So maybe you don't have a lot to do today, and $100 sounds pretty nice to you. Of course, you're going to tithe 10% of that. You pre-decided that. And, and, uh, and so you go around looking, and there he is, Bobo the Wonder Dog. You pick him up, you put him in your car, and you call the number, 281-757-whatever-whatever-whatever. When you drop off Bobo the Wonder Dog, you're going to stand there awkwardly until they come out with $100. Why? Because you earned it. It was a reward, but you earned the reward. It was a wage. You put in the work, you got the reward. You got the wage. You got what you deserved. That's what happens when you will wake up tomorrow and you will get in your car and you'll go to work. Or maybe you work at home and you'll get up and you'll stay in your pajamas and you'll send an email at 845 and then you'll do nothing for the next couple of hours and just looked like you got up early for all of your fellow employees you're going to work and then you're going to get a wage that's your reward and what are you going to do with that wage you're going to put it in the bank here's the way your bank account works a little review feeling that some of us aren't managing our money well you make deposits deposits are good deposits are great then you make debits debits are fun but they're not that good and then there's being overdrawn when you make more debits than you make deposits. We're all on the page. Now, I won't ask for a show of hands of how many of us have been overdrawn before, but I'll lift my hand. I've actually been overdrawn one time in my life, right when Amanda and I were getting married. I had a very lucrative part-time job at a church making $12,000 a year. That's pre-taxes, by the way, while I was going to school. She had been in college and was still living under the very uh, comfortable umbrella of her mom and dad, and here we were, these two little babies. We were going to get married, and then we got an apartment that we were going to move into after we got married. That's the key word. After you get married, you move in together. And so we didn't have any money and we had to have stuff. So you start buying stuff. So my $12,000 a year is all getting leveraged for the stuff that your apartment needs. And she's trying to spend as much money of her parents as possible without them noticing on their bank statement. And so we're furnishing our house. So we, she graduated. Two weeks later, we got married. We went on our honeymoon. And as soon as we got back from our honeymoon, she started her very amazing job. Well, either no one told us or we weren't listening. That's probably what it was. They only got paid once a month at her place. So she really worked about a month and a half before she actually got a paycheck. And, and uh, my uh, luc- lucrative income was not enough to support us. So about a month into our very new marriage, I get a letter from the bank. It looks just like the bank statement, so I open it up. But instead of just the bank statement, it's a personalized letter just to me. Dear Curtis Jones. And it's explaining to me that I am $30 overdrawn. And they're not worried about it. They, they're so glad that I am a customer at this particular bank. In fact, they're so glad that I am a, a customer that they're going to let me borrow the money. And my $30 is only going to cost me $300 for the privilege of borrowing their money. There's deposits, and there's debits, and there's being overdrawn. By God's grace, about the same time the letter came, Amanda's first paycheck came, and then it was all uphill from from here. You know, I don't know what the state of your 
physical bank account is, but uh, we are all great spiritual accountants. And this is the way most of us view our relationship with God in accounting terms. There are deposits. Deposits are coming to church. Deposits are praying. Deposits are serving the poor. Deposits are volunteering. And there are debits. So let's say you made some deposits this week. You prayed, came to church today, so deposit plus one. You volunteered. But this week, you had to drive home on 290. And so you slammed on your brakes for the 40th time. And you were so angry that the only thing that you really wanted to do in that moment is to accelerate your car right into the back of the car in front of you. You know it's not their fault, but they're the only car that you can see. And you just feel like maybe they deserve it somehow. But you know you can't do that because that's going to be bad for you in the long run. So in the context of all that frustration, you just let one little word slip out that shouldn't ever slip out. And so even though you put some deposits in the bank, that was actually a debit. You cussed in traffic, and so that's a debit. But you know how the system works, so you immediately ask for forgiveness. That's another deposit. Then you came home and you read the scripture just in case, just to make sure that the forgiveness was equal to the curse word. You topped it off with some scripture to make it all good. You helped somebody move. That's like plus three deposits because everybody hates that. But you were so tired from helping somebody move that when you got home, your family wasn't operating just the way that you wanted. You wanted them to leave you alone, but they didn't leave you alone. Or you wanted them to welcome you at the front door, and they didn't welcome you at the front door. So your, your frustration gets spewed all over them. That's a debit. But you were generous with somebody in need that week. That's a deposit. You prayed some more. That's a deposit. But you had some angry thoughts towards somebody. That's a debit. Came to church again. Deposit. You gave a tithe. Another deposit. Prayed for somebody. It's a deposit. Your kids played sports and you got real competitive with the opposing team. And it's a couple of debits in that moment. This is what your relationship with God looks like black deposits and red debits. Just trying to put in more then we withdraw. And here's where this gets connected to faith. Because there comes a moment in your life where you really need something from God. It's life and death. It's serious. You're going to lay a request down at his feet and you're going to need it responded to. Not just I hope and wouldn't it be great, but you're going to need it responded to. And you're going to ask. And you're going to attach your accounting statement to it. You say, God, I need you to do this. I need this test result to come back positive. I'm not perfect. But I've been doing my best. I'm not perfect, but I've been coming to church. I'm not perfect, but I've been diving into your word. I'm not perfect, but but I've really been trying to help my neighbor. I'm not perfect, but I've been inviting people to church. I'm not perfect, but I've been volunteering. And you're stapling what you think is your bank statement to your prayer. Because you think that when God decides whether or not he, in his sovereignty, is going to say yes to you or no to you, what he's going to check is he's going to check your balance. And if you've got a positive balance, then he's going to give you what you're asking for. But if you've got a negative balance, if there's too much red in there, then he's going to have to pass. He's going to have to give a soft no to the thing that you're asking for. 
And then what happens when you take your statement stapled to your request and you know you're in the black. You know there's a bunch more good in there than bad and he doesn't give you what you want. Then you're mad and I'm mad. Why? Because it's not fair. Because I have a positive balance. I had a positive balance. And you didn't give me what I wanted. That guy over there, that family over there, they had a negative balance. They got way more red in their book than I got in my book. And you gave them not only what they wanted, you gave them what I wanted. It's not fair. I'm going to be mad about it until it all balances out again. So here's the gospel today, church. You were born overdrawn. I was born overdrawn because you and I, we carry the debt of Adam and Eve tied up in our DNA. And so it was read in your book from your first day until your last day. And there's no amount of deposits that you can make to get yourself out from underneath that debt. Because not only did you inherit their debt, you added a bunch more of your own. But the good news is, is that God loves you. And God is sovereign. And he has a plan that's bigger than your life. And that plan is securing for you a future that you can't even imagine. And Jesus, the son of God, he deposited his life into your account. He said they'll never be able to pay back what they inherited and they'll never be able to pay back what they accrued on their own, but I will come and I will offer my sinless and debt-free life down on the cross and I will pour my red blood on their red debt. So we are people of faith, not because we think it will earn us a positive balance so we can get what we want when we want it and when we need it. We live by faith because there was somebody who was willing to pay that price for us. There was somebody who was willing to balance our account by his very own life. And so we respond in faith. Not to get what we want, we respond in faith because we've already been given everything that we need. And so some of us today, we need to lay down the balance statement. We need to lay down this thinking that if I give more, then God will give more. And we need just to be people who live by faith, pre-deciding what we are going to offer, pre-deciding that we are going to walk with God. Why? Because we believe He exists and we believe that He rewards those who seek Him and not a reward that we can earn, but a reward that is freely given. Let's pray. God, we, we do say together today as a church, as a family, that we believe in you. And as a family, we say that we believe you reward those who seek you. And that doesn't mean that we get to decide what the reward is. We know that you have a future for us. That's beyond what we can imagine. And that future may be this week. That future may be in eternity but it's coming. So we submit ourselves to the plan that you have as our sovereign God who loves us.
by faith we will live in best case scenario and worst case scenario. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand to your feet? Our prayer ministry team is gonna come and take their places as they do every week. If this is your first time at Bayou City Fellowship, we finish all of our services with a time of ministry and prayer. And so they're coming and taking their place up here. If you have something on your heart that you've just been carrying for a while and you want somebody in your family to agree with you and ask God with you, then that's what this time is for. Maybe you have somebody that you know that you love and care about and they're really going through it right now, maybe with illness, sickness, or some other kind of heaviness. Come and pray for them. If you're thinking this morning that you're ready to take that next step towards Jesus, then while people are coming forward to pray, you just slip out of your seat and you head over to the access room right here. You walk in there, they'll know what you're there for and they'll begin a conversation with you and you can leave with some assurance today. You can leave with some conviction of some things that you can't see that you have eternal life you're in the family of God so we're going to come and pray I want to tell you a story before we do just very quickly so I went and visited that sweet family in the hospital a little girl having open heart surgery and prayed with them and left and walked downstairs to visit another little guy who had been in the hospital there at Texas Children for 21 days he's in our church family and of the last 40 days he spent 30 of it in the same bed there and uh, I had texted them the day before What's the update on the big man? And they said, good news, his numbers are headed in the right direction. It looks like he's going to go home tomorrow. So I was just going to visit him to just cheer him out of the hospital, just bless him and celebrate with him that they were getting out after a very, very long stay. So I went down to his floor and then into his unit and then opened up his door. And as soon as I opened the door, I could tell things had not gone to plan. You could just tell the spirits in the room were down. And sure enough... His numbers actually headed in the wrong direction, and it looked like they were going to be there for who knows how much longer. And so they're giving me the update, and it's just time to pray. At some point, it's just time to pray. It's time to stop updating and start praying. And so I said, well, I'm going to pray, and I'm not going to do one of these polite pastor prayers. I'm going to really pray, and we're going to pray some real specific things. And then I prayed what you would pray if you had been in that room. I prayed that even though the numbers were headed in the wrong direction, that they'd start heading in the right direction right then and I started praying that he would get out today even though the math looks like he shouldn't be out today and we prayed and then I left there wasn't a big glory moment there wasn't like lightning it wasn't a confirmation like God has heard but by the time I got to my house out here in Cyprus I had a text message that said we're going home exclamation mark exclamation mark exclamation mark so I just tell you that because we're getting ready to pray and we're not going to pray polite prayers. We're not going to pray God bless us prayers. We're going to really pray. And we're praying to a God who really hears. Now we can't make promises that only he can keep, but we've been seeing God answer prayers. And you never know what you need may be one of the things that he's willing to say yes to today. So let's come and let's pray with faith because we believe he exists. God, make this time powerful. I pray there's a lot of yeses on the table today.